Well, a Jewish student asked his rabbi, Rabbi, why is it that when I ask you a question, you always respond to my question with a question of your own? And the rabbi replied, so why shouldn't I? <laughs> Throughout Jesus' ministry, a lot of people come to him with questions, and I don't know if you've noticed, but oftentimes in Jesus' reply or answer to their question, he just responds with a question of his own. And many times, the question that he responds with does not answer the question the person is asking. But the question that he responds with gets to the heart of the matter that really needs to be addressed. And so people will come to him challenging him with certain things and they'll bring some questions to him and he'll respond with a, a completely different question that really gets to the heart of what's going on in the questioner who's coming to Jesus. You know, if I were to title Luke chapter 13, we'd probably title it Questions and Answers because you have four different situations, four different individuals or groups that are coming to Jesus with questions or statements, and Jesus is now going to turn around and respond to them. Sometimes he responds with questions, sometimes he responds with statements of his own. But with each one of these responses of Jesus, he reveals an important truth for us to understand. He's going to reveal some important truths about God's judgment, about the traditions of men, about salvation and about the dangers of life. Now, the first situation that Jesus encounters, there's a statement really that kind of focuses on the judgment of God. And, and so we're going to start with that. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, says this. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, this is a very interesting start here to chapter 13, and, and we, there's a group of people that come. Now, remember, chapter 12, Jesus has been rebuking and warning people, and, and now we have just following right up after that. This group of people comes to Jesus, and, and they mention this tragedy that had happened there in uh, Israel, and they talk about these Galileans. Now, the Galileans were in the northern part of Israel, uh, around the uh, Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry, and, and we're told that uh, the Galileans whose blood Pontius Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, Pontius Pilate should be someone that we're familiar with because he's the governor of Judea at the time of Jesus' life and then at Jesus' death because he's the one who ultimately sentenced Jesus to death. Historians reveal to us that Pontius Pilate was a brutal governor. He did a lot of horrible things to the Jews. Now, we're not 100% sure uh, what Luke is referencing here, but there is the historian Josephus, and he has um, something that he shares with us that is very quite likely what Luke is talking about. Josephus tells us that Pontius Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct from the pools of Solomon all the way to the cities of Jerusalem. Now, in order to pay for this, he demanded that the temple would take the money out of the temple and give it to Pilate in order to do this. Well, this money was dedicated to God, set apart for God, and so the priests of the temple and the Jews were saying, no way, that's not going to happen. And Pilate says, oh, yes, it is. And so these Jews start to protest this reality. Well, Pilate wants to show the Jews who's in charge, and so as the Jews come and they're sacrificing as they come and do to God, 
Pilate sends people who are uh, uh, soldiers who are just clothed in normal people's clothing, uh, going out among the Jews there, and at a signal, they pull out daggers, and they start killing all these people who are sacrificing to the Lord. And so this is very likely um, the instance that Luke is referring to here, but Josephus doesn't tell us it's just Galileans. So it's possible that Pilate did something else specifically to Galileans. But the bottom line is there's this tragedy that took place, this, this Roman government governor who's ruling in a ruthless way has killed many Galileans there as they came to sacrifice to the Lord. So Jesus responds. There's this statement about that. They bring up this national tragedy. And notice what Jesus says there in verse 2. He answers and says to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus responds to this statement with two questions. And the questions, as I mentioned before, they kind of get to the heart of the issue. He's bringing up what these, these questioners, what the heart of these questioners really are speaking about. And notice these two questions focuses on two instances of disaster. One is Pilate murdering Galileans. The other is just natural disaster of a tower falling and killing 18 people who are unfortunate enough to be there. Now both these questions are asking the same thing and reveal the heart of the people making the statement. The question is, do you suppose these Galileans, these ones that were murdered by Pontius Pilate, did that happen to them because they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Is this some kind of judgment on them because of their sin? Or you know those guys, those 18 people who the tower fell and crushed them, were they worse sinners? Was that why the tower crushed them? Is that the reason that this took place? And you might think, well, that's kind of an odd question to pose. Both these questions are bringing out, was it because of these people's sin? Were they these really horrible sinners? And because of their sin, this tragedy happened in their life. Now, you need to understand, back at that time, the Jews had an understanding that, you know what, most of them believed disaster, sickness, illness, bad things in someone's life were ultimately a result of God's judgment. The reason you have this in your life is because there's obviously some kind of horrible sin in your life and God is judging you through this sickness, through this illness, through this hardship. And that was the concept of people in Jesus' day. This is a judgment of God upon you. A good example of this is from the disciples in John chapter 9. The disciples and Jesus are walking. Notice what it says in verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man or his parents sinned. So Jesus and his disciples, they're walking by and they see this man who's been blind from birth. But notice the question the disciples ask. It seems to be an odd question. Hey, Jesus, which one sinned, the man or his parents, that this man would be born blind? Notice what they're saying. Obviously, Jesus, the reason this man is blind is because of sin either his or his parents, because it was since his birth. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with this man's sin or his parents' sin that he's born blind. But that was the concept of the day. The disciples were kind of expressing that of, well, God is judging this man by giving him blindness because of some sin that he's done. And Jesus is trying to help them to see, no, 
That's not the case at all. You know, another good example of this kind of thinking is in the life of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, you see that Job was a very righteous man who had horrible things happen to him. His kids died. He lost all of his wealth and livelihood. And then he himself is covered in boils in this miserable state. But we're told that he was a righteous man, that he did nothing to deserve any of those things. Actually, the cause of this was not God in any way, shape, or form. It was Satan who was coming and bringing these different trials and things into Job's life. But as Job is sitting there, as he has these boils on his body, as he's just lost his family, as he's lost all his livelihood, he has his friends, if you want to actually call them that, come and visit him. And his friends come and they say, you know what, Job? Just repent. I mean, obviously, there's some kind of sin in your life. This doesn't happen to people unless they've caused it, unless there's some kind of sin. I mean, look at you lost your kids, you lost your livelihood, look at the state that you're in. Obviously, you have done some horrible sin. Just come out and repent. Just come out and confess it, because surely this is God's judgment upon you for what you've done. And Job keeps telling them, hey, no, there's nothing that I've done. I haven't sinned. I'm not, this isn't some consequence because of that. And they basically call him a liar. At the end of the book of Job, God rebukes those friends of his because Job was innocent. He hadn't done anything, and these things didn't come as a repercussion of his sin. But that was just a common way in which people approach that. And you know what? We do the same thing today. You know, this isn't something that you know, we are not guilty of either. As Jesus poses these two questions... asking if these people had something horrible happen to them if they were great sinners. Notice what he says. I tell you, no. These tragedies didn't happen to the Galileans or to the people who were there next to Siloam and the tower falling on them because of some horrible sin in their life, because God was judging them. You know, I think we need to be very careful what we conclude when we find people in a tragedy, in an illness, in some kind of hardship, because I think it's our tendency oftentimes to conclude and maybe just to start to ponder, what have they done to get themselves into this situation? What is it that they've done to cause them to have this tragedy or to have this illness or to have this circumstance that they're facing? Oftentimes, we kind of want to think, you know, there's obviously something they've done, some bad choice, some sin that they've done that has brought them to this place. You know, I remember very vividly when I was a teenager in the summers, I spent most of my days at the beach. And, you know, when I'd go to the beach and there was a man that kind of everybody knew, he lived under the pier there at the beach. He was a homeless man and, you know, that was, you know, where he stayed. And, um, you know, I remember just thinking and watching him and I'd go to the beach and I'd see him a lot. And, you know, I just came to my own conclusions. You know, I just thought, you know what, this man must have done something to bring himself into this place. He's probably a drag addict or an alcoholic, and he's just, you know, wasted all his money on that. Or, you know, maybe he's just lazy and doesn't want to get a job. Or, you know, there's these thoughts that come to my mind, all negative, of the reasons why this guy's in the situation he's in. And I'm thinking, it's his own fault. He's done it. He's done some kind of sin that's brought him to this place where he's living under a pier, homeless. You know, and after seeing him all long you know, time going to the beach every day, I'm sitting on a bench, I'm waiting for my dad to pick me up from the beach, and here this guy comes walking towards me. And the thought that comes to my mind is, oh great, he's going to beg for money. This is just what I want. Well, you know, I'm in my swim trunks, I don't have any money, I'm going to have to tell him to get lost. And he comes up to me, and to my surprise, he doesn't ask for money. He says, you know, it's a really hot day, he's pushing this you know, shopping cart with all his stuff. He's like, would you like a water? 
Now, I did want a water, but I didn't trust the water from a homeless guy, so I decided, no, it's okay, you know, I'm fine. And he said, you know, do you mind if I sit down? And I said, okay, fine. And well, we end up, my dad's late, we end up talking for almost an hour. And through that, you know, the guy obviously doesn't get to talk to many people, and he starts sharing his life story. But I find out that, you know, his wife got diagnosed with cancer. This guy had a great job, but he ended up losing all his money, trying to pay bills, sold his house to pay bills, do everything to get his wife treated. Finally, after doing all that, she still ends up dying. He goes into a Great Depression, couldn't hold down a job, and ultimately ends up on the street. And so, you know, all my preconceived notions of why this guy was homeless were wrong. It wasn't because he was sinful or doing some stupid thing. He was trying to take care of his wife, and, you know, tragedy hits him. Uh, and so, you know, I think we have to be very careful because I think we do this oftentimes of we just kind of make assumptions of, oh, well, that person's poor because, you know, they've made really stupid decisions with their money or, or that person is in this situation because of whatever. And, you know, we don't usually know the circumstances surrounding things, but we, yet, we, we like to assume, we like to jump to conclusions, and we like to judge oftentimes, and we need to be very careful with that. And it's not just with others that we do that. You know, we do that with ourselves as well. Some tragedy hits our life, and oftentimes the first thing we think is, what in the world have I done to deserve this? You know, what sin or what bad thing did I do? You know, oh, I get in a car accident. Oh, man, you know, what did I do? You know, I must have really not been pleasing the Lord. Or, you know, you see people who lose a spouse or a loved one, and they, they start thinking, you know, if I just didn't do this or if I just did this, then they'd still be alive. And, you know, ultimately they're coming back to this mindset of, I must have done something to cause this. I must have done something to bring this on myself. And we have this mindset that oftentimes comes our way, and we have to be very careful about that. Because oftentimes the difficulties that we face, the tragedies that hit us, the illnesses that come to our life, have nothing to do with any bad or sinful choices or things that we've done. The reality is we live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, we oftentimes have issues and hardships and difficulties that come our way. And if it happens to any of us, it's not necessarily because we're worse sinners than anyone else. Look at Jesus. He was perfect. He suffered. Paul, the apostles, they all gave their lives. They suffered. You look through, you know, Fox Book of Martyrs, which is a great history of the church of people who gave their life for Christ. They suffered. And it wasn't because of sin in their life or some horrible thing they did. It was just the reality of living for Jesus. So just because someone's going through difficulty or tragedy doesn't mean it's a consequence or a judgment of sin from God in their life. Now, Jesus makes that point very clear, but I think if we're going to make that point, we also need to balance that statement by saying there are times, though, that we have things in our life that are a consequence or a judgment for our sin. Now, we don't have all of that doesn't equal consequences or judgment. We need to recognize there's things that we go through, tragedies that happen that have nothing to do with our sin, but there are times when it actually is a result of the sinful choices that we've made. And so I think we need to have a balance within that. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, tells us something about God. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. All of us who are parents here understand that we discipline our kids because we love them. We recognize there are sinful behavior that if they continue in, it is not good for them. And as they grow up and continue to do that, it's going to have a lot of negative effects in their life. And so we discipline, we cause pain in their life to try to change them, to try to keep them from doing that. Why? Because we love them. 
Now, it's sometimes hard to convince them of that, but, you know, that's the reality of it. We're told in the Bible that God loves us so much that we are his children that he will discipline us. God loves you too much to allow you to continue in some sinful lifestyle that's going to destroy your life. And he says, you know what, I'm going to come and I'm going to intervene. And I'm going to intervene with discipline, just like a a loving parent intervenes with their child with discipline. I'm going to bring things into your life to show you don't continue in this path. Don't continue with this sin because it's destroying you. It's hurting you. And God loves us too much to enable us and allow us to continue with that. So some of the hardships and difficulties for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ are a direct result of God himself saying, you know what, I'm bringing this into your life as a discipline to help you change the sin behavior in your life. So some of it is a direct consequence or discipline from God. But there's also another reason we sometimes have hardships and troubles and face even physical illness. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know, something important to understand is that God, as he created this universe, established laws that are just there. We can try to break them, but there's consequences to that. There are physical laws and there are spiritual laws. For example, there's the physical law of gravity. Now, I might think, you know what? I wish I could fly. I hate this physical law of gravity. I want to fly. And so I climb up on a building. And if I decide, you know what? Forget gravity. I'm going to break this law and I jump off. There's going to be consequences to that. I'm going to fall and break bones and possibly even die. There's physical pain that's going to come for breaking that physical law that God has established. But you know, God has established spiritual laws to govern his universe as well. And if we choose to say, you know what, I'm going to break those spiritual laws, just like if I jump off a building trying to break the physical law of gravity, if I try to break God's spiritual laws, there's also going to be pain and discomfort and problems that come to my life because of that. And one of those spiritual laws is seen here in Galatians chapter 6. It's the law of sowing and reaping. Or as commonly said, you reap what you sow. And this is a very biblical concept. It's taken from you know, a farmer who goes out and casts seed. If I sow wheat, I'm going to wheat, reap wheat. I'm not going to reap corn or something else. I'm going to reap only the thing that I sowed. Well, there's bringing up a spiritual reality. If you sow to the flesh, sinful things, guess what? You're going to reap corruption. If you slow to the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. And so depending on what it is that you're sowing or living or doing, you're going to reap the consequences, whether they be negative or positive, because of that. All of us have experienced that. You sow to the flesh, you indulge in sinful things. You're going to reap consequences for those sinful choices and sinful behavior. For example, you indulge in sexual immorality and any sex outside of marriage, there's consequences for that. There can be very physical consequences. You can get some kind of sexually transmitted disease. You can get pregnant. You can have different physical things that can happen to you as you choose to do that. Or there's emotional consequences as relationships are destroyed. It's one of the biggest causes of the destruction of the home, of the family. Uh, And so, you know, within that choice, there are consequences that come. If you indulge in gossip and lying and cheating and some kind of addiction, you know, there's a, there's a, you're reaping those things, you're going to get some consequences, negative things that come back in your life because of that. So some hardships are the discipline of God that come in our life, but some are just part of God's natural law, a spiritual law of, you know what, you reap what you sow. 
If you're going to go down that road and you're going to spend time indulging in your flesh, just understand there are consequences that are naturally going to come to you if you do that. So some hardships come because of God's direct, uh, um, discipline. Some come because we reap or we sow. But some hardships, some difficulties, some illness in our life, you know, they're not a direct result of any sin. They're not a direct result of anything that we've done. It's just a part of living in a fallen world. And so when we're standing back as individuals and we're not sure, well, I know somebody who did the same thing and it was because of their sin. Well, that might be true, but it doesn't mean this person, that's what is the cause of them. And so I think, you know, we never really know the full circumstances or situations. And so I think we always need to be very careful as we're judging. But you know what? Even if we know for sure someone's in sin and that's the reason why they're in the circumstance they're in, they don't need us pointing the finger at them and saying whatever. Ultimately, what they need is for us to lovingly come alongside of them, maybe to point out, hey, you need to repent of this because it's causing you know, heartache and problems in your life, but we need to approach it in a very loving way. And I think too often as Christians, we just sit back and we point our fingers and, oh, this person's, you know, well, they deserve it and look what they've done. And you know, it's just kind of, we just gossip or talk about it, but we don't really do anything that actually benefits or helps the individual who obviously needs that help when they're in that difficult situation. So the thought among the Jews of Jesus' day was that bad things in your life were a result of God judging some sin in your life. So basically they believe if bad things are happening, you're a very simple person. If good things are happening, you're a very godly person. It's all based on how you are either sinning or not sinning. So when these people tell Jesus about what Pilate did to the Galileans, they're basically asking the question, why did this horrible thing happen to these individuals? Was it because they're super sinful and God was judging them, or was it because of something else? You know, we have a very common question. I'm sure you've heard it if you've talked with anybody for any length of time who's a not a believer. One of the big questions that they bring is, how can a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's basically kind of what this thought is here of, hey, you know, this bad thing happened to these people. Is it a result because they're sinful and deserve it? Or is it not? And if it's not, then, then why did it happen? Now, Jesus could have used this opportunity to talk about why there's evil in the world. He could have used this opportunity to talk about why people go through suffering. He could have used this opportunity to answer the question, why would God allow bad things to happen to good people. Jesus doesn't choose to do that. Now, there's great answers to that. One of the simplest things to start from is the question itself is flawed because there are no such thing as good people in the eyes of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have this concept of, why is something bad happening to someone so good? Well, actually, there isn't anybody good. So let's just start from that standpoint. But I won't get into the whole, it's a long explanation of you know, how we can answer that. But Jesus doesn't deal with that because he says, you know what, there's a, there's a situation that's bigger and more important to deal with than, you know, in this life, why do bad things happen? Because that's ultimately what they're asking, you know, is this because of God's judgment or not? He says, you know what, there's something that you should think about that's even more significant than God judging you in this life, and that's the reality of are you ready to meet God in the life to come? When you die, that's when real judgment hits. You're concerned about God's judgment here in this life, but are you ready for the judgment that's going to come when you die? Have you repented and gotten right with God for the life to come, not just the life now? That's where Jesus kind of shifts it here. You know, you guys want to know about God's judgment in this life, but I want to tell you something even more significant, because guess what? You think those Galileans who went to sacrifice thought that was going to be their last day alive on this earth? No, they were murdered. They probably thought, you know, hey, we're going to go sacrifice. We're going to come back and, you know, have a dinner. Tomorrow we're going to go back to work. They didn't have any clue that that was going to be the last day for them here on this earth. 
Those people who a tower falls on and crushes those 18 people, you think they thought that was their last day? Hey, we're going out and doing whatever, and all of a sudden this tragedy hits. The question is, are they and were they ready to meet Jesus Christ? Ready, after they died, to stand before God in judgment. And that's why Jesus, when he comes, notice what he says um, to them of ultimately, you know what, you need to repent. You guys need to repent or you likewise will also perish. He brings it back to that reality of, hey, you don't know when you're going to die. The real reality is, are you ready to stand before the judge of the heaven and earth? The only way to escape God's judgment is to accept Jesus. And Jesus is bringing up this reality of, any of you could die today. Any of you here, as you're listening to me, you could die today. Are you ready? Have you repented of your sins? Are you ready to stand before God? That's what he brings it to, because it's like, you know, let's not just talk about, you know, something about someone else and were they sinners or not. The question is, you're a sinner, and have you repented of your sin? You're a sinner, and have you gotten right with God? You're a sinner, and today you could die, and you could meet the Lord, and are you ready to do that? Jesus kind of brings it all back to that reality. And that's the truth for all of us. All of us could die at any time, and if we haven't accepted Jesus Christ, we haven't asked him to forgive us of our sins, we're going to meet the judge of everything and we're going to have to stand there, and we're going to be punished. And the Bible tells us that that punishment is hell. So Jesus dispels the notion that every disease or sickness or disaster or bad things happens to someone because of God's judgment upon them because of their sin. The main reason for those things are natural consequences of our sin, the, the work of Satan in a fallen world. But God's judgment is mainly poured out after we die. That's the time that he does judge everyone. And we're going to stand before him, and either we're going to escape that judgment because we've accepted Jesus Christ, or we're not going to escape that judgment because we haven't. And that's really what Jesus brings it back to, and he wants to make that point even clearer by using a parable. Notice what he says in verse 6. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. So in this parable, Jesus is speaking about a fig tree, a fig tree that hasn't borne any fruit for three years. And so the owner finally says, you know what? The keeper of the vineyard, just get rid of it. Just tear it up, cut it down. It's just taking up space. It doesn't bear any fruit. What's, what's the point of having it here? And then the, the keeper says, you know what? Let's wait one more year. I'll go and I'll fertilize it, and we'll, we'll try to do all we can to hopefully help it to get to bear fruit. And then after that year, after you've been patient and waited another year, if it still doesn't bear fruit, then we'll cut it down. Now, this parable has an application to in individuals, but it also has an application to the nation of Israel as a whole. Jesus uses this parable to ultimately uh, share with us some important principles about God's judgment. The first principle is simple. God is looking for fruit. The fruit is the actions of our life, the way in which we live. He wants to see a change because when we accept Jesus Christ, there should be a change from the way in which we were to the way in which we are. You know, those people who come and say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian and there's no change 
There's nothing that's changed from, you know, what their life used to be. They're still living for the world. You know, we kind of have to wonder, uh, well, there, there's no fruit. There, there's no you know, obvious outward action through your words or actions that show that you truly have accepted Jesus. The fruit, you know, if you have an apple tree, it's only going to produce apples. It's not going to produce water or watermelon or lemons or anything else. And so Jesus said, you know, I, I want to see fruit. Well, what fruit is God looking for? Well, it certainly begins with Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what he's saying. You know, God wants to see that in our lives. Now, in this parable, the tree didn't bear any fruit for three years, but the keeper of the vineyard, he gives it one more year to bear fruit. The keeper of the vineyard in this parable illustrates the patience of God. This person's still not bearing fruit. It's been three years. But he's patient. You know what? I'm going to wait one more. I'm going to wait and see if there's going to be a change. I'm going to wait and see if this person will bear fruit before I come and chop down this tree. And notice the keeper of the vineyard doesn't just leave the tree alone. He also fertilizes it. He seeks to help it bear fruit, help it to grow, help it to get to a place where it's actually going to be productive. But after patiently waiting and working, if it still doesn't bear fruit, there's going to be a time when the tree is going to get cut down. Ultimately speaking of, you will have judgment come if ultimately you don't bear fruit for the Lord. So Jesus is helping us see that God is not some horrible, angry, mean God who's making people's lives miserable through endless judgments here on this earth. He's saying, you know what? God's patient. He's wanting you to bear fruit. He's wanting you to accept Him. He's wanting you to believe and grow in Him. And He's patiently waiting for you to do that. But Jesus wants them to understand, but don't make the mistake to think that you have all the time in the world. There will come a point in time where judgment will come. And ultimately, as we've seen, Jesus is bringing that out to the point when, when you die. You have this life to make a choice for Jesus Christ. But once you die, that time is done. And your time is up. And you're going to stand before the judge of all heaven and earth and at that point in time you're going to have to answer to him and there's not going to be an opportunity any longer to accept Christ it's only in this life that we have that opportunity and Jesus is wanting us to understand hey now's the time get right with him because God is patient he is merciful but one day you will die and it's that time you're going to have to deal with your sin now as I mentioned earlier this parable has an application to individuals and to the nation of Israel Notice what tree Jesus uses. He uses a fig tree, and in his parables, that's always in reference to the nation of Israel. And so this is interesting because notice how long the fruit hasn't borne anything, three years. Jesus' ministry lasted for a little over three years. Jesus is there speaking to the nation of Israel, saying, you know what, I have been here for three years and done my ministry in front of you and done all these things to prove to you who I am, but you have still yet to place your faith in me and accept me and repent of your sins. And you know what? In this parable, God's even gracious. He's given you another year. It's almost ultimately at the end of that third year that Jesus is killed, but then the judgment comes. And Jesus, in this parable, speaking to the nation of Israel, ultimately saying, I am here with you, demonstrating who I am. Are you going to accept me and place your faith in me and repent of your sin? Because if you do not, God's mercy and God's patience only last so long, and then there's going to come a point in time when you're going to have to answer for your sin. So first, Jesus answers a statement about God's judgment, and now he's going to answer a statement about man's traditions. Luke chapter 13, verse 10 says this, 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could no way raise herself up. But when he saw her, he called to her, called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So Jesus, as he did often, is teaching in the synagogue. And there in the synagogue, there's this woman. And for 18 years, she had this illness that kept her hunched over. She couldn't stand up straight. Something was wrong probably with her spine or back. And she's been in that situation for 18 years. Now, remember the thoughts of the day. People thought things like that were because of some sin in your life. You have an illness, you have a problem. So I'm sure this woman for 18 years is in this place and she's faithfully still coming to synagogue, which is great, but I'm sure most in the synagogue are judging her. Oh, well, the reason you have that illness is because of some sin in your life. That's God judging you. But notice how Jesus responds. He sees this woman. He's not judging her. He comes to her and says, woman, come to me, and he heals her. He says, you are loosed from your infirmity. He lays his hands on her. And immediately she's made straight, and she glorifies God. So here's this woman, most likely everybody knew. They've seen her for the last 18 years. She has this illness. Jesus heals her. She's glorifying God. You would think everyone in the synagogue would be pleased and glorifying God and happy, but some are not happy at this miracle. Notice what the ruler of the synagogue and how he responds in verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, think of it, for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all the adversaries were put to shame, and the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So Jesus heals this woman. She's glorifying God. There's probably people in the synagogue glorifying God. And then the ruler of the synagogue stands up, and we're told that because of what Jesus does, he is full of indignation. And he says, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. You know, we've already seen this in Luke where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, the man with the withered hand, and the rulers of the synagogue get upset. Why? Because if I've mentioned many times in Luke, they've added their own traditions to the law. And one of the ones that they added the most traditions to is the Sabbath. And they would add all these different things. And so this man's saying, hey, six days of the week you work, but on the seventh day, that is the Sabbath day. You want to get healed? Come on, you know, one of those days, but don't dare do it on the Sabbath day. Now, it's interesting because now Jesus responds to this man, and as he says to the religious leaders so often, you hypocrites. Well, why is this guy a hypocrite? Notice what Jesus says. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath? See, Jesus calls these rulers of the synagogue hypocrites because he said, you know what? You'll take your donkey or your ox and you'll loose it, a work, 
and you'll go lead it to water so it can drink and not die. But yet this daughter of Abraham, a fellow Jew who's been like this for 18 years, you're telling me that she doesn't have the, the, the privilege of being loose from this infirmity on the Sabbath, but you'll do it for your donkey? You're telling me a donkey and ox is more important than her? And as Jesus brings out this example and shows the hypocrisy, it says that they're put to shame. Those people who claim this are put to shame because everyone realized, yeah, you hypocrites, you will do this for your animal. And you're saying that she, she can't have this wonderful healing. She can't be loosed by Jesus. You know, it's shameful when traditions cause you to treat people worse than animals. One of the biggest problems the religious leaders of Jesus' day had was that they made their man-made traditions more important than really the truths of God. Man-made traditions, rules and regulation that bound and burdened people instead of helping and blessing them, which is what God's law ultimately was meant to do. But you know what? A big problem in the church world today is also these man-made religions that are ultimately added to the Bible, added, and, and they really just bring burdens to people instead of blessings to people. You know, I think in the, in the church we always need to ask the question, does this tradition that we're doing have a biblical basis for why we should do it? And if the answer is no, we shouldn't do it anymore. I remember growing up, there was a tradition that I found quite humorous. My brother and I would do it sometimes for fun, but it was called the Jericho March. Now imagine right now if I'm teaching, someone just starts marching around, you know, this auditorium, because that's what they would do. They would do it during worship, they would do it during teachings, and now if you know anything about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, they marched around the city walls so the walls would come down. So there's not really much of a biblical premise to do that in church unless we all want to die, but, you know, so I'd be like, Dad, why is it that we do this? I mean, this is odd, this is weird, I don't want to invite anyone to church because I don't want anyone to see these weird people running around in circles doing this. It just, why do we do it? It's distracting. Um, oh, it's just a tradition that we have. Okay, I understand that, but there's really no biblical basis for it. I understand calling it the Jericho March because they marched, but you know, if we look at it in context, we're bringing down walls, and I hope we're not wanting to kill ourselves. And so, but it was just like, oh, this is a tradition that we do, and we're just going to keep it going. And that's foolish, because you know, any tradition that we have has to have a biblical basis for it if we want to continue it. And if we're just doing it because it's always been done, we need to really ask ourselves, why is that? Because that's what brings lots of problems. Well, that's just always how it's been. Well, if we don't have a reason biblically for doing it, then we shouldn't continue doing it. So Jesus gives this rebuke, and now he's going to share two parables to kind of help us see the negative effects of ungodly man-made traditions that people try to follow. Notice what he says in his first parable there in verse 18. Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. In this parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. And he tells us this mustard seed grows, and it becomes this large tree, and these birds come and, and nest in its branches. Now, this is a very interesting thing that Jesus shares because mustard seeds turn into plants, not trees. Here is a picture of what a normal mustard seed looks like after it grows. As you can see, uh, it's only a few feet tall. It's not a tree. It's not somewhere that birds would want to come and nest in because it's not able to hold the weight of their nest. It's just an average-sized plant. So Jesus is describing an abnormal growth to this mustard seed. It's going to turn into this large seed, uh, tree. But he also says these birds are going to come nest in it. 
Now, the thing that's interesting as you look through Jesus' parables, like I mentioned with the fig tree, is always in reference to the nation of Israel. When Jesus speaks of birds, it's always speaking of something evil or someone evil coming into something. And so he's bringing this reality of you know, this unnatural growth and then this, this evil presence that's going to be a part of things. And he's sharing these, these parables and bringing us back to this reality of, hey, you know what? Here's the problem of man-made traditions. Even as a church world grows, there's always going to be people like the leader of this Pharisee who brings in man-made traditions that ultimately bring problems if you continue to follow those things instead of serving and obeying God. The second parable, verse 20, And again he said, To what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It's like leaven in which a woman took and hid three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Once again, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to something. This time he compares it to leaven in meal. Leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of a meal till it was leaven. Now, leaven in Jesus' parable throughout the Bible is always a picture of sin. A little bit leavens a whole lump. It just takes a little leaven to be in a meal that ultimately you know, permeates the whole thing and causes problems. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says this woman hid leaven in three measures of meal. Because if you go to the old sacrificial system, God required three measures of meal as part of the sacrifice to him commanded by God. You had to have three grain, uh, three measures of meal in the grain offering. So Jesus is giving a picture of this offering or this worship to God, but it's corrupt. It has sin within it. And ultimately, that's what we're seeing here with these religious leaders of claiming, you know, they're the ones heading and leading up worship, but yet there's a corrupt, sinful leader within this. And Jesus is kind of bringing this truth of worship, yet that is corrupt because of sin and traditions of men. And so Jesus rebukes the leader of the synagogue who would dare claim that this woman doesn't deserve to be healed on the Sabbath because of their traditions. And then he shares these parables to kind of bring out even more of the damage that ungodly man-made traditions can be to the church. So first, Jesus answers a statement about God's judgment. Second, he answers this statement about man-made traditions. Now he's going to answer a statement or a question about salvation. Notice what he says in verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there at last, who will be first? And there are first who will be last. So while Jesus is going through the cities and villages, someone comes and poses another question to him. The question is, Lord, are there few who are saved? And that's probably coming from the last two chapters of a lot of warnings and rebukes of Jesus bringing to the religious leaders and people. And they're thinking, man, if those guys aren't living for God, who is? And so this question, are there going to be few people who come to know you, who come to get saved? And really in answering Jesus' question, notice, or answering that question, Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. 
Just like the person who asks, are there few who are going to be saved? I think we often wonder about the salvation of others. But in Jesus' reply to strive to enter through the narrow gate, really he points it back to the individual. You know, the person you should be most concerned about is yourself. Are you saved? Have you come to me? Don't worry about everyone else. First and foremost, worry about yourself. Have you got right with God before you start worrying about, are there a lot of people who are going to be saved or a little? Because at that time, the rabbis of the synagogues would always debate that. How many? Is it going to be a large group? Mainly just, you know, because they thought it's going to be a small group, just Jews and most of the Gentiles weren't going to be. But they would debate this. And Jesus said, you know what? That shouldn't be what you're debating. What you should be focused on is you yourself. Are you saved? Have you personally strived to enter through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life? Now, throughout scriptures, we see the narrow and the wide gate. Speaking of narrow, only a few are ultimately going to come to the knowledge of Jesus versus the many that are going to reject him. And Jesus' point is, if you haven't done it, do it now. Just like his point with God's judgment, repent now because you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when your last day on earth is going to be. So get right with God now. He's bringing us back to this urgency of, you know what? That's a great question, but you should really be focused on yourself. Are you saved? Have you repented? Have you gotten right with Jesus? That should be the question that you're posing. And if the answer is no, if you haven't entered through that narrow gate, if you haven't come to God through Jesus Christ, then do it now. Because he says there's going to be a time when the master of the house shuts the door and it's going to be too late to enter. There's going to come a point in time when it's no longer just like with God's judgment. He's patient. He's merciful. But guess what? There's going to come a point in time when you die that it's all done. And you don't know when that day is going to be. And so Jesus is saying, get right now because there's going to come a time when the master of the house shuts the door. And guess what? The gate is closed and there's no more access. You don't want to wait till then. And notice what he says after that. There's going to be people who come and say, hey, you know, we listened to you. We even ate near you. Let us in. Depart from me. I don't know you. See, it's one thing to know about Jesus and have heard him be taught to you and come to a church service and listen, but it's a whole other thing to personally accept him for yourself, to personally accept what he's done for you, to personally ask him to forgive you of your sins. And so if you stand and say, I went to church, I heard about Jesus, I know about these different things, and he's going to say, you know what, depart from me. I never knew you because you never personally accepted me. I don't care that you knew about me. All I care about is whether or not you personally chose to place your faith in me and accept me. And he's saying there are going to be people who come and think they're all great. I went to church. I listened. Yeah, but you never accepted me. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And he says there in that place, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Speaking of hell. John 14, 6 tells us, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, this is one of those things that we have to just grasp and hold on to. The only way to be saved is to come through Jesus. There's no other path. There's no other access to God except through Him. If we choose to say, you know what, I just know about Him, but I'm not willing to accept Him, you're not going to be saved. I've done good works, but I haven't accepted Him, you're not going to be saved. What saves you is your belief in Christ, that He's God, that He died on the cross for your sin, that He rose from the dead. Only those with that belief in Him will be allowed to be forgiven of their sins and accepted into heaven when they die. So first Jesus answers a statement about God's judgment, then about man-made traditions, then about salvation. And now he's going to answer this kind of personal statement about danger. Verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came to him saying, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. 
So the Pharisees come to Jesus, and notice, you know, the Pharisees have been trying to shut Jesus' ministry down for a while. They've been trying to get him in catch-22s with some of their questions. They've been trying to undermine his ministry. You know, they don't like him, and they want to destroy him. Ultimately, we know they're going to kill him. But here they decide, you know what, we can't stop him, so maybe we can get him scared. Hey, Herod wants to kill you, Jesus. Maybe you should get out of here. Go somewhere else, because if you stay, you're going to die. You know, maybe that will get Jesus' ministry off track. We can get him fearful for his life. Well, they share this with Jesus, and he responds, Go tell that fox, speaking of Herod, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day it shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus knew that he had a specific purpose, that the Father had a specific plan, and nothing or no one was going to keep him from fulfilling the purpose that he came to this earth for, which was to give his life for us on the cross. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, he says, I shall be perfected. Now that translation perfected would be better translated, reach the goal. Jesus saying, you know what, the third day I'm going to reach the goal. What's the goal? The goal of why I came. The third day? Yeah, because he knows I'm going to die on the cross. And how many days is he dead? One, two, three. And then he rises from the dead and he conquers sin and death. Jesus saying, you know what? Nothing's going to stop me from going to the cross, giving my life for the sins of the world, dying and being risen again to conquer sin and death. No one named Herod, no one else is going to stop me from what the Lord has for me. You know, I think that should bring comfort to us as we seek to serve the Lord and are going out and he calls us to do things. You know, when God has a plan for you, he's going to enable you. He's going to give you what you need to accomplish that. And oftentimes we allow fear of individuals or other things. Oh, you know, what's going to happen? And the Lord's saying, hey, I got you. I have this. I've called you to do this and I'm going to complete it. I'm going to help you to accomplish it and just trust me and don't fear the different dangers of the world. I will take care of you. You know, Jesus has had a lot of what we would think are very negative things to say in the last couple chapters of warnings, of rebukes. And maybe some people think, does he really love these people? Well, I think it ends this chapter with a real sense of how much he does love. And that he's bringing these rebukes and he's bringing these warnings out of love because he wants to see these people who are in sin change. He wants to see these people who have rejected him come to know him. And notice what it says here at the last two verses of chapter 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, Jesus has a deep love for the nation of Israel, and he was burdened for them. Burdened that they have not done the things that he's been talking about in this chapter. They are not bearing fruit. They have not repented. They have not accepted him as their Messiah and come and received him as the way to forgiveness and to God. They are following ungodly man-made traditions instead of following God. They have not come to Jesus, the narrow gate, and he's coming and he's saddened and he says, I want to gather you like a hen gathers those that are her children and I just want to hold you near me. I want to protect you. I want to be that for you. But you were not willing. And this is the sad reality. Jesus is there and he's in their midst and he's saying, I love you so much. I just want to gather you to myself. I want to love on you. I want to save you. I want to protect you. But you're not willing to let me do it. 
You're not willing to let me do it. And you know what? There's a consequence to that. Guess what, guys? Your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're not going to see me again until the second coming. I'm here in your presence, in your midst, and I want to show you who I am, and I want to love you, and I want to save you, but you're not willing. And this is one of those things where we need to understand God's not going to force anybody to accept him. God's not going to force anyone to say, you know what, I give my life to you, forgive me, save me, come into my life. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Here I am, arms open wide. I want you to come to me. I want to forgive you. I want to save you. But it's a choice that you have to make, and I will not force you. And sadly, the majority of the Jews of Jesus' day, he was there ready to do that for them, and they rejected him. And then he warns them of their desolation. He's speaking of in 70 A.D., Jerusalem is going to be wiped out by the Romans. Of This place that you have, the temple here, it's going to be destroyed. And you will not see me again until the second coming. You know, Jesus loved them deeply, and they rejected him. Same is true for us today. He has that deep love for us, but sadly there are so many who say, you know what, I don't care. He says, here, my arms are open. Come to me. Accept me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to save you. I want to dwell in you. I want to help you grow and bear fruit. Let me do it. I love you. And we say, no. Sadly, more people are saying no than yes. And we're faced in that same situation as those who were Jews in Jesus' day. And as Jesus warned them, you don't know when your time's going to come. Like those Galileans who were murdered, or like those people whose tower fell on top, up top of them. They didn't think that was the last day of their life, but it ended up being the last day of their life. And then they had to stand before God. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to stand before the Lord? Have we accepted Him? Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful that that is your heart for us. You have so much love. As the Bible said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're grateful that your arms are open, that you want to protect us and save us and help us grow and bear fruit. Lord, we're so grateful for those of us who have come to you that that's exactly what you do and that you have saved us and that you have changed us and that we are now growing and, and becoming more like you and that uh, we have a God who is such uh, in desperate love with us. We are grateful for that, Lord. But Father, we recognize that there are many who haven't heard the truth of your love and there are many who have heard but reject it, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to be those who demonstrate your love. As we saw at the beginning, Lord, not to look at people whose lives are messed up and just say, well, it's just because of their sin. That we would just come and show the love of Jesus. Demonstrate that no matter how messed up your life is, Jesus can change you. Jesus can save you. That that would be our hearts as ones who have come to know you already, Lord. We are grateful to you. We are thankful for what you've done for us.